I, I see it everywhere around me, but it's not a huge part of my own testimony. So um, I'm going to talk about it um, and s- some personal engagement with it in my life, but not to the degree that, um, that maybe some of you would like. And, uh, and I don't have all the answers. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's not a, coming to a workshop like this, there's not like a secret that I'm going to enlighten you on that's an easy uh, way to to get out of anxiety, if that makes sense. But I remember as a kid, I've, I've, so I've never been diagnosed with a mental health issue like depression or anxiety. And I'm going to talk about anxiety, but everything that I read about it, it's tied so much with depression, so I might kind of use those two words. Uh, they're not the same thing, but they're, they sure kind of work together a lot. But when I was a, I've always been an anxious kid, or an anxious person. I was a an ang- very anxious kid, and I remember as a kid, when I'd get really nervous and anxious about things, I learned the verse 1 Peter 5, 7. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a verse that talks about casting our anxiety on God because he cares for us. And so I remember as a little, as a, as a young kid, I would go to a room by myself, close the door, and try as hard as I could to I would close my eyes and think about my anxiety and whatever it was that was making me worried and nervous, and I would try to cast it on God. And I would, sometimes I'd open my hands. I'd, I, 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 I would see people in church do all kinds of postures and worship, so I would try those. And I would try to do whatever I could to get rid of the anxiety, and it never worked. I couldn't figure it out. I would try really hard, but I would still be very anxious. Um, my mom's a very anxious person. She can't, uh, she can't hardly watch sports anymore because she gets, her heart rate gets going too fast and her blood pressure goes crazy. So she has to record sporting events and uh, watch them later after she knows who won. So she's not so anxious. Her cousin actually died of a heart attack after watching Oklahoma State beat KU in basketball, which he's an Oklahoma State fan, and he was so excited that they won, and um, he was so uptight in the game, and he, he, uh, passed. so there's, so there's some anxiety in my family, my, sorry, let me get this figured out, and, did you got it? Uh, did I do something, did I do something wrong? All right, um, so a number of years ago, probably 15 years ago, I was gone from home. My wife was home with our three kids, and she, could, she didn't sleep for like four or five days in a row. And uh, she was exhausted, worn out. She went to the doctor, and the doctor said, what's wrong? And my wife just starts crying. So there's no more conversation than that. She just starts crying. She says, I can't sleep. He says, you're depressed. And he puts her on antidepressants. And so that was about 15 years ago. And so I thought that was it. You just went in and, and started crying, and now you're on antidepressants. Like, you're depressed? Like, and that confused me. So that started me reading books and trying to understand this. So... Philippians 4, I wanted to walk through a few verses 
in Philippians 4. And I want to start, um, read Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. Some of you, these are really, uh, these are like um, coffee mug Bible verses. And I saw some verse packs back there. I'm guessing some of you have these verses memorized. But um, Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, don't worry or do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what do you think about that? The Bible, that's a command. Paul says, do not be anxious. It's not a try not to be anxious. It's a command in the Bible to not be anxious about anything. And when we have, we're living in a, like, a world where we can go to the doctor and just like, you're depressed or you're anxious, you need to get on this medication. The Bible says, don't be anxious about anything. How do we reconcile with that? What do we do with this command? So the Harris poll this in June of this year just came out with new data and the data every year gets, it just keeps getting worse. This says on university campuses today that 60%, I thought it was higher than that. What did I? I thought it was 63%. I wrote down 60% of university students today have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder. That's not that are struggling with that. It's that have been diagnosed. That's a lot. Um, we're living in a new day. And, and what I want to say is it's a really, really hard to be a teenager and a young adult today in the West. You're the first generation that has, has grown up with a cell phone. Um, I don't know where mine is, right here. You're the first generation that's grown up with one of these. And the data is just starting to come out about the effects that this is having on our brains and on our um, emotions and on our relationships. Uh, you, when I was a kid, we had drills in our school. There'd be sirens that would go off, and there were tornado drills in Kansas or fire drills. I'm, I'm guessing some of you have had drills on what to do with mass shootings in school. I mean, you're, you, you, you are dealing with stuff that a generation has never had to deal with. And it's really hard to be a college student today. And people don't know what to do. Every university that I'm around, their counseling services are backed up. In Manhattan, Kansas, if you need counseling, you can get on a wait list for two, it's at least a two month wait list at any place on campus or off campus. So it's, a, it's an epidemic. It's like a tidal wave that's kind of sweeping over our nation. The, the Harris Poll also said that 43% of university students have been diagnosed with anxiety. So that means here at this camp this weekend, about half of us are dealing with anxiety if, if those stats bear out, and a third dealing with depression. So one in three dealing with depression. That's a lot... Um, those are very high numbers. So I have a picture here of uh, the uh, limbic system of the brain. Um, 
the limbic system is several brain areas that are geared toward controlling emotions. And I'm guessing that you could tell me more about this than I can tell you, but your, you know, your body's senses are all filtered through kind of on the bottom side of that limbic system, the amygdala, and then it sends messengers to other parts of your brain. And your brain's made up of billions of nerve cells called what? Neurons. And these neurons send and receive messages from the, rest of, from the rest of your body using brain chemicals called neurotransmitters or messengers. There was a movie about 10 years ago that was about this. It was really good. I don't remember. Remember the name of it? Inside Out. Yeah, it's really good. So, so you have these neurotransmitters like norepinephrine and serotonin and dopamine, cortisol, GABA, that we can classify all these different neurotransmitters into to two categories. You have your happy neurotransmitters or happy messengers and your sad messengers. And when the happy and sad messengers or neurotransmitters get out of balance, then our brains begin to panic. And we can get thrown into anxiety or depression that way. And so each, everybody in this room has a unique capacity to handle a certain amount of sad neurotransmitters before we're overwhelmed by them. Everybody has a limit. And we call that our stress tolerance. Our stress tolerance can be influenced by genetic makeup, as well as external experiences, which would explain some of why the numbers are so high right now. It makes sense. Stress and anger are two of the key emotions in anxiety and depression. In fact, there's a book... Um, written by Minerth and Meyer called Happiness is a Choice. These are Christian psychiatrists that collectively, I don't remember, have something like 70 years of counseling experience, and they got together and wrote this book. And in their, whatever, several decades of counseling, they said, and I don't remember, the, don't, don't quote me on this, it was somewhere around 80%, they said, of depression is the result of unresolved anger. And they said... These psychiatrists would say it actually starts, depression usually starts when you're around age five. And you get angry, and around age five, you, you, learn, you develop some habits of how to deal with that anger, your coping mechanisms. And uh, then, all of a sudden, you're 20, and things that are upsetting you or making you angry are bigger than when they were when you were five, six, seven years old, and your coping mechanisms don't work anymore, and then your brain doesn't know what to do. And so they would say that like about 80% is unresolved anger, not knowing how to deal with anger, that usually starts from our childhood. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so I just mentioned this to say that there's a real that anxiety is a is a real chemical condition. And so when we, when we talk about anxiety, I, I think about anxiety. When I'm talking with students about anxiety, I think about it in three different levels. So level number one, sometimes people's neurotransmitters are so imbalanced for whatever reason that they will need long-term medication to deal with that anxiety. And I don't think there's anything wrong with long-term medication for that, although sometimes in the church, I, I do think in the church, we can get the impression that taking medication for anxiety is wrong, or we can get the impression that taking medication for anxiety makes you a lesser than Christian. Um, 
Another psychiatrist named Gerald May in his book, The Dark Night of the Soul, he, that, it really helped me grapple with this you know, 15 years ago. Um, see if you can track what he says here. You guys are California students, so you're top notch, right? He says, um, Gerald May, psychiatrist Ger Gerald May says, it is probably due to the persistent ancient dualism between matter and spirit. Does that make sense? Uh, Paul writes against this dualism a lot in the New Testament. We call it Gnosticism, where everything with matter and substance is evil and everything good is like spirit. And, and there's this, but Jesus is like, no, we're all, it's, we're one, we're whole, body and spirit together. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Gnosticism tried to divide it. So Gerald May says, I think it's this ancient dualism between matter and spirit, that things of the flesh, like chemicals, can have nothing but a negative effect upon the higher things of the spirit. So he would say that that persona in the church is just a new form of Gnosticism, if that makes sense, which I think is really interesting. He says, but in order to believe this, One's theology would have to hold that God's grace is so weak and ineffective that a chemical compound can block it. I thought that was a wonderful statement. So Archibald Hart, in his book, The Anxiety Cure, talking about this uh, vibe that you can get from the church or different places where you, don't, you shouldn't have to take medication, he said the 10 most ridiculous things that you can say to a person with anxiety, and I... Well, I'll just read them to you. Number one, these are the things you don't want to say if, if you have a friend or a roommate or a family member struggling. Number one, we all get anxious, so just pull yourself together. I read these to, to a group of students one time, and a guy came up to me afterwards. He said, I think I've used all 10 of those things. So that's why I thought, well, I'll go ahead. I'll read them to you. Maybe you're in that boat. Number two, if you would just relax more, your anxiety would go away. Number three, have you committed some sin that God is punishing you for? We think like, we kind of bring karma into, our, into the gospel sometimes, I think. And it's kind of like this, we kind of mix Eastern religion. With, but anyway, um, number four, you worry too much and worry never changes anything. Number five, if you just try harder, you wouldn't feel so stressed out. Number six, just ignore your problems and they'll go away. <laughs> It's very good advice. Um, that's, that was a snarkiness there. That, number seven, anxiety can't kill you, so just snap out of it. Number eight, if you had more faith, you would stop worrying. Oh, wow. Heap shame on, on us. Number nine, take a holiday and all your problems will go away. And number 10, if I can cope with my life, you should be able to cope with yours. So those are the things that we don't, we want to get rid of those out of our, the way we, we talk about this. So um, there's a, so, so theologians will talk about how we can know God through two different revelations. There's the general revelation of God, where we can know about God, a lot of what Nate was talking about this morning. We can know a lot about God through his creation. Paul talks about this really clearly in Romans chapter 1. He says, the invisible attributes of God can be clearly seen through what? Through what has been made. So we can just walk around in creation and see something about God when we see the sunrise in the morning, 
and we see the sun set in the evening, and we see the flowers bloom and the seasons, and you start studying creation, and you realize, okay, the sun looks the same size as the moon when it's a full moon, but the sun's 400 times larger than the moon, but the, that, but the sun is also 400 times further away from the moon. Wow, that's crazy. And you start learning all this stuff about creation, and you can learn about the character of God. That is why the general revelation is why biology is significant, why it matters. It's why psychology matters. It's why chemistry matters. The things that we study in the university, why it matters, because we can know something about God through his general revelation. Are you tracking? And, that, and it could be that medication is God's means of grace to some of you that are dealing with anxiety. Because we learn about that, how, how to do medicine and things from the general revelation. But we can learn about God in creation. But creation is not the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. And so the other theologians, so there's the general revelation we see in creation, and then there's the specific uh, revelation, the special revelation that we see in the story of the Bible. And that's where we find life, hope, healing at a heart level. And so here's the thing. I say all that because I don't want to try to over-spiritualize anxiety. It is a, there, there's, a, there's a lot of spiritual things going on there, but it's a real, just a chemical issue. But I say that, but I, but I want you to hear this, that our goal in dealing with anxiety or any kind of chemical imbalance is dependence on the Spirit of God, not dependence on medication. So sometimes we will need medication long term, maybe for the rest of our lives because of, and, and praise God for that. That could be God's grace to us. I read about, I read biographies of missionaries from the past and I see a lot of things like if they were alive today, they would be diagnosed with some mental health issues. And I think some medication could have really helped them, but they didn't have access to it. Adoniram Judson, I don't know if you've ever read his stuff. He dug a grave in the, in the, in the jungle and sat next to it for like a month and just despaired of life. I think he was so depressed, but he had nobody to help him, no medicine to help him. And I wonder if he was alive today, if his life could have been better with some medication. But dependence on medication is never the goal. The goal is dependence on the Spirit of God. So the second level that I think about with anxiety is sometimes we go through uh, some trauma or for whatever reason, we kind of get stuck in a rut. Or I think about it like a car goes off into a ditch and you might need a tow truck to get you up out of the ditch and back on the road. So sometimes we might need medication for a season to kind of help us get going again and get some healthy rhythms in life, and then we can wean off the medicine and uh, through discipline or through life choices, we can live without it. And then the third type of anxiety is anxiety that is brought on by stress and worry that can lead to fear and unhealthy living the third type of anxiety can be cured by choices and habits without medicine. So you track in, so just three, time, three types. I don't have a name for them. Just one type is just our, our chemical imbalance is so severe that we need medication. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
Second type is we might need medication for a season that we can wean off of it. Third type is brought on by stress and worry, and we can deal with it without medication. The third type of anxiety is the anxiety that we see in Philippians chapter 4. I don't remember what book it was, but it made a lot of sense to me that he's, the writer said that um, we were made to move through life at a camel's pace. And since the Industrial Revolution, we have been moving through life at a jet plane's pace of life. And, we're, and we can't handle it. We, we, we have access right now to information all over the world at our fingertips. And I don't know that we need to have that much information. <laughs> I don't know that it should concern me what's happening with the restaurant owner in southern Florida and what's happening with the, the vineyard owner in northern California. But I have access to that and I can get worked up about it. So um, Archibald Hart, in, in his book, The Anxiety Cure, he says not only were there likely no panic attacks in the New Testament, there were probably no phobias, no obsessive-compulsive disorders, or even post-traumatic uh, stress disorders. These are products of urbanization, industrialization, and depersonalization. But there is one form of anxiety that transcends time and culture, the form of anxiety that we call worry. And I believe, I'm still quoting from Hart, I believe that whenever Scripture refers to anxiety, it means primarily worrying or fretting. Worry anxiety, therefore, is that form of anxiety uniformly condemned in Scripture, and it is the only condemned form of anxiety. So does that make sense? So what he's saying is when, when we read the word and it says things like, do not worry about tomorrow or do, don't be anxious about anything. And there's these commands. Heart is saying that was before we had post-traumatic stress disorder. That was before we had panic attacks. That was when we were moving through life at a camel's pace and we didn't have the internet connecting us with everything. What is how we should understand that word in the scripture is worry and stress. That's what's condemned in the scripture. So that's been helpful for me to think about. So in Philippians 4, Paul says, don't be worried, don't, or don't be anxious, don't be worried. His goal in this passage in Philippians 4 isn't so much anxiety as it is peace, the antonym of anxiety. And so in Paul's passion for the church to have peace, he gives us some, some handles, I think, some helpful handles in dealing with anxiety. And, and these handles are helpful at all three levels. Whether we need medication or not, there's handles here in these few verses that I think are really, really helpful for us. So Philippians 1, or Philippians 4, verse 1, I want to read through, I'm going to read through nine verses and um, make a few observations and then we can break for lunch. Everybody doing okay? Um, so then, Paul says, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So 
the beginning of this passage, there are two women who are fighting in the church. And Paul, I think this is tremendous. Paul calls them out by name. Can you imagine if two of you were in the dispute and somebody got up on the stage at Christian Challenge and just called you out by name and said, you guys need to just get along. Uh, so Paul, Paul just deals with it directly. And he's not choosing sides because he says, I ur- you can sell by the language, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. But in verse 3, there's some, there's some things in this, these three verses that kind of scare me a little bit. So verse 3, he says, these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. They were ministry partners of the Apostle Paul, these two women. He goes on to say, whose names are in the book of life. So they were ministry partners of Paul. They were also part of the family of God. They've been active in the work of God, and yet they were bringing division to the body of Christ. So just because we are Christians, and even we've been on mission trips, and we're like partners together with big names in the church, we're still capable of bringing division in the body, which is scary. Anybody in here is capable of bringing division in the body, which should be alarming to us. And so what Paul says, he calls them out by name. He says, there's too much at stake to spend our energy sideways. And Paul raises the banner of Christ. He said, we are in Christ. We are part of Christ's family. We are part of Christ's glorious purpose. And so the starting place for relational peace is to cut down our own banners, the banners of our names, and the banners of our agendas, and to raise the banner of Christ. So I got into a sharp dispute. I'll use the words of uh, Acts, uh, Acts 16, that Paul and Barnabas get into a sharp dispute. Um, with a dear friend, Christian brother, and we were not seeing eye to eye on some things, and uh, we had a we had a very intense conversation, and it was ugly. And our wives were it was our, four people, he and I, and our wives, and uh, you would you would have. You probably wouldn't have come to my workshop had you been in that room and saw this, saw our conversation. And so that conversation happened, and I remember my friend's wife, she started losing feeling in her arm by the end of the conversation because she was so worked up by the dispute. I, I lost my appetite. Um... I didn't know how to talk to people for a few days. I couldn't look happy. I was so angry and discouraged. And I was supposed to go speak at a camp two days later. And I felt like such a fraud. And I was, I was, there was no peace relationally. And so I was supposed to leave Sunday to go to a camp and on Saturday night, I'm getting ready for bed, and, I, and the room, my bedroom started spinning. And, uh, and I kind of stumbled over, and I leaned against my bed like this. And I remember 
I remember, I remember just wondering, like, what is happening to me? And is, am, I, <clears throat> am I having some kind of panic attack? Like, what is this? And I was having trouble sleeping, I, I, but I fell asleep. I, I woke up the next morning, and it just this, this relational tension was constantly on my heart. And it had been on my heart for months before we had this. I don't know if you've had these things. We just kind of built up, built up, built up, and then just boom, you know. And so Sunday morning, I get up, and I, I get on the couch, and I open up the Bible, and I'm reading in Isaiah 2 because that's where just my reading plan is. And I get to Isaiah 2, and um, I get to verse 9, or verse 11, and it says, The pride of mankind will be humbled, and human loftiness will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it will be humbled. So I, I read through those two verses, and I thought, and I remember thinking, yeah, yes, you will be humbled. Every, and, I, and I remember thinking, the pride of mankind will be humbled. Human loftiness will be brought low. Only God will be exalted on that day. And then I'm thinking, only God will be exalted. That means I'm going to be humbled too. And so I just started meditating. That's probably, probably five or ten minutes is what it took. I'm meditating on this, and I'm thinking, there is a day coming where every methodology in the church, every, every great strategist, every great preeminent thinker in whatever field, everyone will be humbled. And that will be a great day. That'll be a glorious day. And I started thinking about that day and how everything will be made right. I will be humbled. My friend will be humbled. Things will be put right. And listen, it probably took about 10 minutes of meditation and I began to physically feel better. And what was happening was I was lowering the banner of my name and my agenda and I was raising up the banner of Christ. And all of a sudden, I was able to see a path forward and I was able to say, there can be peace. Okay, but Paul goes on in Philippians Verse 4, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That's, he, he, he that's another command, and he gives it twice. He gives that command twice, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So Paul's in prison when he writes this, and he has been abused because of the message of Christ, and he continues to proclaim it, even from prison, and he's calling the church to, re to rejoice. So if we could put this verse in context, where is Paul's mind? I don't know if you know about this letter very well. Paul's in prison writing this letter. But if you, if you read through this letter, and you kind of put these verses in the context of the letter, at the end of chapter 3, he says, "...our citizenship is in heaven." And he starts talking about how our bodies are going to be transformed into a glorious body. He's thinking about heaven. And then in chapter 4, with the verses we just read, he's talking about how um, you are our joy and crown. And when he says that you are our crown, that's a picture of the offering that Paul's going to present to Jesus at his second coming, at his return. 
And he's talking about how Euodia and Syntyche have their names written in the book of life. So here's what I'm saying. While Paul's body is wasting away in prison, his mind is in heaven. His mind is in the glories of heaven. The day of the Lord is near, he says. And I think Paul's in prison thinking about the return of Christ, thinking about the second coming of Christ. And so here's something interesting about the second coming of Christ. In Matthew 25, and I want you to hear this because this is one of the things I think is so cool about Philippians 4. But in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So when Matthew's talking about the the return of Christ, he's saying when he comes in his glory and all the angels are going to come with him and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, the believers from the non-believers. So when Jesus comes back again, it's not going to be like Christmas. He's not going to come lowly on a donkey. Revelation 19 says he's coming back on a white horse. And And then Revelation 19 says the same thing. He's coming back with all his angels. How many angels is that? How many angels is all his angels? I don't know. But when when John sees a glimpse into heaven and he sees the angels around the throne in Revelation 5, he says, John says, and Revelation is really fun to read, to think about. John was tasked with writing down something that he didn't have vocabulary to explain. And so he just does his best. (laughs) And so he writes, He heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. He doesn't know how to describe the number that he saw. And in Matthew 25, Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back on that day, the day of the Lord, all the angels are coming with him. And so Paul's thinking about that. In Philippians 4, while he's in prison, and he's saying, oh, church, rejoice. Rejoice, for a day is, the day is coming. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. Then we get to our coffee cup verse, verse 6, that says, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is what is so cool. Philippians, the letter, the the town Philippi was a colony that Rome populated with with retired people from the military. So it is, is, uh, the population is full of former military people. And Paul would do this. When he wrote the letter to the, to, to the Ephesian church, for example, it's full of building, like a building contract is in there. And there's building language, like we're workmanship. You know, we're building for his kingdom. Because there's a bunch of people that were constructing the temple in Ephesus. When he writes to, to, to the Philippian church, there, it's this uh, colony of former military people. So he uses battle language. And so like in chapter one, he says, we're contending as one man for the gospel. He was describing a military formation. In verse six, when he says, or in verse seven, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word he's using is a garrison. 
a troop of soldiers. And so he's saying that when we can open our hands and let go of control, because that's what anxiety is, is when we try to control things that we have no business controlling. We can let go and just trust God through prayer and petition. Now the angels that he's thinking about as the day of the Lord, they're like setting up a perimeter around your heart in battle formation. That's the picture that Paul puts here. There's a formation of angels around your heart, guarding your heart so that you can walk in peace that is unexplainable to the people around you. I want that. I want to live life like that. So, two things so far. One is he wants relational peace. And we find peace in relationships through tearing down our banner and hoisting the banner of Christ. And now he's talking about peace in our own hearts. And we get that through kind of opening our hands and like bring, like rejoice in God, bring your um, your worry to him, you know, open your hands on it, everything, give to prayer and supplication, and then God will guard your heart with peace. And then uh, finally, verse eight and nine, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So there it is again. Verse 7, the peace of God will guard you. Verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. He wants our peace. So I was uh, walking through our student union one time, and I saw I, I, uh, there's a Chinese student sitting by himself. And so I went over and started a conversation with him and we talked for about an hour and it was it was really cool he and he he was reading a book on on uh, buddhism and he was trying to figure out what he thought about faith turns out that he had a bible in his backpack that somebody that his i think his grandma had given to him or his aunt and he was reading it and reading this book on buddhism and he couldn't understand it and so i felt like god had planned us to have that conversation. It was kind of cool. So he's asking me, what's the difference between Buddhism and Christianity? And I don't know the right answer to that. I mean, there's a ton of things. I don't know the, I don't know the best way to respond, but, I, but what, what came to my mind immediately was Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And I said, well, I don't know, but from what I understand of Buddhism is the goal of Buddhism is to meditate until you can completely empty your mind and empty your heart so you're thinking of nothing, so you'll have peace. And I opened up the Bible and we read these verses. I said, but but following Jesus, he says meditation is to fill our hearts and to fill our minds with his values and his way. So I think that's a difference to me. We don't, we don't, achieve peace by nothing. We achieve peace by meditating on the, the character, the ways, the values of God. And so, here's the deal. We don't 
when we're struggling with anxiety, we don't work our way out of anxiety. We don't uh, concentrate our way out of anxiety. We don't think our way out of anxiety. We don't learn our way out of anxiety. Our only hope for peace is worship. Worship is our cure for anxiety. And so when things happen, so let's say that, um, well, let's say that this whole wall over here represents God. The whole, this whole wall, and it's big. And then girlfriend breaks up with me, and then because of that, I can't study. I'm so depressed. And then I get a D on my tests, and now my scholarship's in question. And so this is my problems. So I'll set that here. And so it's real easy. My girlfriend broke up with me. I got a D on my test. How in the world am I going to pull my grade up to maintain my scholarship? Then those are real issues. But they feel so pressing. And I'm just fixated on it. And then God is in the periphery. And that is the pathway to anxiety. Whereas what Paul's saying Paul's saying, okay, pray about these things. Give these things to God and then fill your heart with the ways of God. What Paul's saying is he's, he's not saying ignore your problems like, you know, what was that, like number seven on things not to say. Just ignore them and they'll go away. But he's saying keep your eyes fixed on reality. Like have a right perspective where God is massive in our view and our problems have their rightful rightful place in the periphery over here. And that will bring peace to our hearts. But if we fixate on the problem and God's in the periphery, then everything gets out of balance in our perspective and God becomes small and our problems become enormous and then panic sets in. And it's just like a snowball effect. So that's what I wanted to say. That's what I came to say. I wanted to try to legitimize. If, if you don't know what you think about all the, the, the conversation of mental health, I wanted to bring some legitimacy to it. Um, if, if you feel shame because you are on medication. In fact, uh, one of the psychiatrists that I was read, read his book on this, he said that, People who struggle with panic anxiety tend to be the strongest people in the world because the reason they struggle with panic is because they, they can handle so much um, and still make life work, and then eventually it just breaks and they panic. But it, it typically means that you're, you're a really strong, emotion, emotionally strong person if you struggle with panic. I thought that was interesting. But... Um, so Archibald Hart, again, and his uh, Dr. Hart and the Anxiety Cure, he says people don't get into emotional turmoil because they forget who they are. They get into turmoil because they forget who God is. 
that's what I was trying to illustrate over here with the perspective. So worship is our weapon to fight anxiety because it gets our perspective back on God and it puts our, makes our, our uh, problems, puts them in the right place. In the world we live in, with how much anger is out there, how much polarization, how, 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 much, how many messages. I don't know. what I'm guessing USC is a lot more at K-State. There's over 500 student organizations that are all constantly trying to get your attention. Um, I don't know what it is at San Diego State. But there's just, in an egocentric, fast-paced world, we as followers of Christ need worship like we need oxygen. So keep breathing it in and breathing it out. So...